Welcome to On The Go, an on-road transportation podcast with Clean Cities. In this episode, we're talking about strategies to address mobility challenges in rural communities. To kick us off, let's introduce our hosts. I'm Molly Putzig. And I'm Joanna Allerhand. Today, we will be joined by three guests who have been working with the local community in Bastrop, Texas, to expand mobility options by providing an on-demand electric shuttle service. Rural communities typically have fewer mobility options than urban settings and often rely on personal vehicles to get around. This electric shuttle helps people without a personal vehicle get where they need to go. Impacts of the pandemic were especially illuminating for mobility issues in these communities where shared rides among friends, family, and neighbors are often the solution for people who don't have access to or ability to operate their own vehicle. Options like those explored in Bastrop can help people get to work, medical appointments, the grocery store, and they act as a community building opportunity. Our guests are Andy Duvall from the National Renewable Energy Lab, Valerie Leffler from Phoenix Mobility Rising, and Katie Cam from Wheels and Water. We'll also have Stephen Lomley from the National Renewable Energy Lab moderating the discussion. Let's get started. All right. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited for today's podcast. We're going to be talking about EAMS and rural mobility, um, looking at some innovative mobility solutions in small town America. Uh, I want to start out by introducing myself. I'm Steve Lomley. I'm a project leader at the National Renewable Energy Lab, um, and I work to connect uh, the Energy Efficient Mobility Systems Program at DOE uh, with uh, our tech integration audiences. Um, so I want to start out with just a little bit of context about EAMS. At its most basic level, EAMS, or the Energy Efficient Mobility Systems Program, is uh, the research and development of technologies and practices that improve the efficiency and mobility of the entire transportation system. Um, so EAMS looks at both individual vehicles and how these vehicles interact to get a complete picture of the transportation system. And many of the technologies that make the news are part of EAMS work. So things like connectivity and automation, micromobility, uh, scooters, bikes, rideshare are, are just a, a few um, examples. So um, why is EAMS important to rural mobility? Well, many of the challenges that rural communities face with mobility are universal, like the need for more efficient modes of transportation, more access to transportation, uh, and less costly transportation modes. So uh, EAMS technologies have been designed to meet these needs, but they haven't um, necessarily been tested or deployed yet in great numbers in rural communities. So today we kind of want to dig into that a little bit and find out um, how EAMS technologies are playing out uh, in the rural context. Um, and uh, one of the reasons why this is important is that um, DOE works with the Clean Cities Coalition Network, uh, which is a network of nearly 100 coalitions around the country. And um, while a large portion of these Clean Cities Coalitions represent urban areas, some of them, uh, particularly the statewide coalitions, have rural stakeholders um, that they want to serve as well. So coalitions highlighted sort of this unmet need for efficient, affordable, and equitable transportation options in these rural areas. And DOE took that into consideration in funding the work um, that's happening uh, with respect to EAMS in rural communities. And one of those projects is what we're going to talk about today. So the main thing uh, DOE wants to learn um, from these kinds of uh, new mobility technologies that are becoming really popular in cities and suburbs as supplements um, to personally owned vehicles is how they work in rural settings. 
uh, things like what benefits do they provide to rural communities? What challenges do they face in these locations? And how can we make these technologies better for all Americans? Um, so we've got a great panel of folks today who are gonna uh, talk with us about um, some of the specific uh, challenges that are, um, uh, that rural communities are facing um, and an example of a project uh, that is currently underway uh, to bring um, Eames related technologies um, to rural communities. So with that, I want to welcome everyone um, and I'd like to just do a quick around the room and have you all introduce yourself. Um, we've got Andy Duvall here at NREL, uh, Valerie Leffler with Phoenix Mobility Rising and Katie Cam with Wheels on, um, and Water. So uh, with that, uh, Andy, if you could just start us out with a quick introduction, please. Sure, um, Andy Duvall, I'm a uh, transportation behavior analyst and project lead uh, at NREL. Um, have been involved with uh, rural mobility projects uh, for some time and actually come from um, a rural community in Wyoming. And so uh, have some insight into some of the challenges and opportunities uh, associated with rural mobility. Great, thanks Andy and welcome. Valerie? Hello everyone, my name is Valerie Leffler and I'm the executive director and founder at a nonprofit organization called Phoenix Mobility Rising. And we specialize in creating mobility solutions for the health and well-being of every person in every community. And we work a lot in very rural communities and um, supporting them in creating new mobility solutions across the United States. And um, just really excited to be here today. Grew up on a small dairy farm in rural Nebraska and have worked in research and academia, as well as started my own business, did the tech startup scene, and I'm now um, running um, a nonprofit organization. I'm really excited to be here today and share insight. Great, Valerie, welcome, thank you. Katie? Hi, I'm Katie Cam. I'm owner of Wheels and Water, a consulting civil engineering firm where we also do transportation planning and research. I've been actively involved with advocating for and uh, conducting research and plans related to the use of low speed electric vehicles. Um, so I'm excited to be part of this uh, podcast and the project um, that the podcast is discussing that we're doing in Bastrop, where we're using low speed electric vehicles to provide service in a rural community. Um, for that project, I'm helping out with the surveys, interviews and data analysis. Great, thanks Katie. All right, so now I wanna get into um, kind of our first uh, area of focus, um, looking at some of the unique mobility challenges that rural communities face. Um, so uh, Andy and, and Valerie and uh, Katie, if you might just kind of go ahead and give us um, some context uh, specific to rural communities um, with respect to some of these new mobility technologies, that would be great. Some of the, the differences between um, rural uh, communities and, and really that's a phrase that uh, kind of captures rural and small communities uh, typically um, uh, smaller than than what would be uh, considered part of an urban or metropolitan uh, complex uh, but if you think about the, uh, the the mobility opportunities that are available to people in smaller communities they differ considerably um, from from an urban setting uh, typically, there is not uh, the same level of public transportation, uh, whether it's uh, a bus or rail service. Um, typically, also on-demand services that have emerged in recent years, such as Uber and Lyft, uh, are not available in low-density settings. 
uh, as well as shared micromobility um, is is typically also not very available or or even present in in most smaller communities. And so th these factors contribute to a higher dependence on personally owned um, private vehicles, uh, cars, uh, trucks, SUVs, that sort of thing. Um, and so the the option to um, to be able to get to the places where people need to go without vehicle ownership is, is fairly limited. Uh, this has effects on people, um, especially uh, in in uh, low income and uh, other socio demographic characteristics, where owning or driving a private vehicle is is not possible. Uh, so there are are definitely needs to ensure that people are able to get to their medical appointment, to get to their job, to get to uh, education opportunities, um, regardless of, of what their their private vehicle ownership is. Um, and unfortunately, many of those mobility needs are unmet. Thanks, Andy. Yeah, sure. so you mentioned um, lack of existing mobility services, uh, reliance on personal vehicles. Um, however, there's social and demographic challenges that potentially limit um, the community's abil ability to own vehicles. Uh, Valerie, what, what might you add to that? Yeah, I think, you know, just in terms of what does that look like in a lot of rural communities and contexts. So, for example, you know, in a lot of communities where we support seniors and individuals with disabilities, um, in urban areas, there's public transit, there's a number of nonprofits that are all working together in this space. But when you look in a lot of rural areas, especially once you get into frontier, there are very few resources. And so often, you know, a common example is an individual who's recovering from a stroke or is recovering from a major surgery. Instead of them being able to recover at home where they can get to and from therapy, they're placed in a um, senior living facility. And so that's an entirely different environment to recover in that kind of state, especially when you're young. I'll never forget we're working in a rural community in Nebraska, and there was a woman in her mid-30s who had spent three months in a senior living facility because she didn't have, you know, her parents didn't have the ability to travel, take her to therapy and things like that. And so she spent most of her time, you know, in this senior li res senior living residence, and it was, it was such a different environment. Or... Um, veterans resources in these rural communities for transportation is incredibly limited. And so um, maybe I want to go to the VA to hear the results from my chemotherapy, um, you know, testing or my, or from my cancer treatment. And, um, you know, the way that some of the restrictions are, the spouse cannot travel with the veteran. And so then you're going to receive these, you know, really critical diagnosis or treatment and you, you don't have a care partner to go with you. Or, um, you know, just a number of these different examples where in rural communities that um, need these types of resources, mobility is more than just an, in, you know, lack of mobility is more than just an inconvenience. It's a dramatic change in the quality of life for individuals to be able to get to and from, um, you know, therapy, treatment, but as well as employment and things of that nature. So it, it just manifests itself in a very much in a much more dramatic way in rural communities when these um, resources don't exist. Thanks, Valerie. You mentioned two things. Um, number one, frontier. Um, is that a particular type of community? 
Yeah. So a lot of times there's a designation between rural and then very rural. And so um, kind of an informal way that we refer to it in like states like Nebraska, it's like there is more cows than people in the county mm-hmm. where it's it's low population density. I forget the exact um, percentage, but there's rural where there's maybe some urban centers that are within, you know, 30, 45 mile radians, radius of the community, and then there's very rural communities that are known as frontier, where you might have to go 120 miles to get to um, a major healthcare facility if you need, um, you know, more than just, you know, uh, a prescription for antibiotics or groceries, maybe a minimum hour and a half away. And so those are more frontier rural, where your basic resources are hours away, not minutes away. Got it. And so the other thing that I want to dig into a little bit is, um, I know Andy talked about reliance on personal um, vehicles, um, but historically, like how have people gotten around when they don't have access uh, to their own vehicle? Yeah, it's generally you're relying on friends and family and neighbors and things like that. And as our society has evolved with reliance on Facebook for connection, that connective tissue in a lot of rural communities is limited. And especially as um, rural communities that have a very large um, crop base, that's an economic development um, initiative. A lot of times you get folks who, um, you know, travel across the country and harvest the crops Well, when those crews are going through communities, whether that be in Colorado with the mushroom harvest or in western Nebraska with the beet harvest, you know, the the whole family will travel many times. And one of the members of the family or sometimes both members of the family are out in the fields working and the children or the teenagers that are caring for the younger children, you know, they're reliant traditionally on, you know, neighbors and things like that. But in that's less um likely in these new in environments where the um the the there is no connective tissue with that local community and so um social service agencies like community action agencies things like that are seeing and completely do new types of barriers for um, immigrants and refugees and um, individuals in poverty and low low income communities in rural areas just have even fewer you know, wraparound services locally based upon just being connected to their neighbors. So um, those connections with their family and their friends is much more fragmented. And there's not this like neighborhood environment for individuals in rural communities to rely on as there once was. You're saying that the people that have been in these communities for a long time have ties to the communities and can potentially leverage friends and family to help them get around. But if you're new to the community or uh, transient, um, then you don't have access to that, uh, and so you're even more limited. Absolutely. And I think as we look at the demographics of our rural communities, there's a higher percentage of seniors in rural areas. And as those seniors are hitting retirement or now into this area where they need that additional support, maybe they don't feel safe driving at night, things like that in the 
rural areas, their their children have gone and, and are now successful doing things else and they don't want to be a burden. And so then there's that pride factor where I can take care of myself. I'm not going to bother my neighbor. I remember talking to, um, we're working with a coalition in Western Nebraska, and there was a woman who was an ER nurse at the hospital. And she was sharing about her own journey in recovery. She had a brain tumor and she had surgery. And, you know, you talk about a rural community, somebody who has poured their soul into their local, you know, community, caring for them through car accidents and, you know, mama, baby and delivery. And then she's the one in the situation where she needs help because her husband uh, was working in another state at the time, traveling. She needed to get to and from her recovery and treatment and appointments. And she said, the first time one of my friends said, no, I quit asking anybody because it's a pride thing. You don't want to be a burden. And so these wraparound supportive services impact everybody when there's that lack of, you know, being able to have that pride in, I can't make these arrangements on my own, or I don't have, I'm not in a driver's seat. Got it. And so, you know, in the, when we think about EAMS sort of in the urban and suburban context, um, there's lots of new mobility services, um, Mm -hmm. and there's uh, traditionally um, mobility services, or there are traditional mobility services like transit, but people can use um, transportation network companies for on-demand transportation. They can access transit. Sometimes there's paratransit shuttles, those sorts of things. Um, You could potentially walk uh, to appointments. Um, So what are, like, how how is this evolving um, in rural communities? What are some of the new things that are coming online that are potentially connecting people to uh, services and resources? Um, there's a variety of different things that are beginning to evolve in rural communities. We're seeing um, rural car, rural electric car share begin to happen where, um, you know, they're for example, we, I was talking with a community in Kansas who was getting ready or looking into launching a rural electric car share for the students um, for the community college who were international who didn't drive. And so then in a rural community space, there's this kind of zip car-esque type environment that traditionally is something that you would see maybe in urban areas, but not something you would see in rural. Um, in another community in California, there was an um pilot where they established kind of a very similar rural electric um, car share where individuals could type in a code. And then there was an agreement with the county transit agency to subsidize the cost of those electric cars. And so they were being rented out to individuals in the community for, you know, $5 an hour or something like that, where if they just needed to go, in this case, they established it so that individuals who needed to access the court system could um, get to the you know, most recent town over, but they could also get groceries and other things while they were there. But it enabled mobility to happen in a in a kind of on-demand, as-needed, low-cost environment um, for individuals to be successful in in getting what they needed done. So there's there's beginning to see some of those things, and we were working um, at one point with MIT University in um, uh, on the East Coast and on a autonomous vehicle that would all that was electric that also would navigate um, the road as it was going down the path based upon sensor information, and so. So, you know, rural electric autonomous vehicle innovation is 
beginning to um, evolve and and become a thing as well. So we're those are three examples that I you know off the top of my head I think that we're beginning to see. But it what we find in a lot of very very rural underserved communities is the electric infrastructure in the city or the community isn't um, set up to be successful in some of these new installations. And so that's something we're looking at. For example, in the community of Mississippi, there are some barriers that even though there can be Wi-Fi and we can get the, the broadband, the electric infrastructure is lacking. So, you know, as everything, it's always a journey and we take one step at a time, but, you know, it, the, the desire for innovation in rural communities to see this be successful is happening. And we know that there's autonomous combines already out there. There's autonomous tractors that are operating. And so it's definitely been a, a very good proving grounds that now we're excited to see that go, you know, from the from the crops, you know, to the road. Got it. And Andy, I know you've done lots of research um, on Eames technologies. Uh, what kinds of things do you think are translating well from kind of the urban suburban environment to the rural environment? Well, I think the idea of on-demand services is certainly appealing to a lot of um, rural contexts. Um, application is probably not quite there yet. And that um, I think exposes a, a parallel challenge with uh, communications technology uh, in, in, in some rural areas. Um, the, the idea of uh, broadband phone service, uh, 4G, 5G, um, that doesn't really exist to a large extent in, in very rural settings. Um, the ability to make those connections to on-demand services is dependent on that, that communication network. Um, so that's a bit of a breakdown at present. But I see a lot of opportunity, especially with emerging uh, uh, technology, both in, in transportation and communications, to help start to fill some of those gaps. Um, th though they're um, still maybe a, a year or so away from being widely available, uh, electric pickup trucks, I think, could potentially be a game changer. As Valerie mentioned, um, some agricultural equipment is shifting toward um, automated technologies that uh, I, I think could be a, a good gateway into um, rural communities and to seeing how the technology functions, uh, how it could be useful and viable in, in uh, specific settings. And the same goes, I think, for vehicle electrification. If in rural settings where often renewables are, are, are fairly present, um, whether it's wind or, or solar, the ability to power uh, a, a pickup truck or a tractor or, or other uh, agricultural equipment with locally sourced renewable energy, I think is appealing. Um, and it certainly appeals to that sense of um, uh, like uh, self-sufficient, self-reliance um, that that uh, Valerie was suggesting uh, is is prevalent in many many of the communities that we engage with. Um, I think the the opportunity to ensure that um, that aging populations as as they um, as they get older and maybe aren't as able to drive a vehicle themselves if they're able to um, use automated technologies to, to get to their appointments or to their other mobility needs, it will allow people to continue to live in their homes um, 
for a longer time rather than moving to assisted living, which is uh, both more expensive and, and less available. So from a larger population context, the emergence, I think, of some transportation uh, options using new technologies um, will be uh, will en enable uh, reduced costs, especially uh, as, as we're encountering a large um, uh, population uh, of the baby boomers that, that will likely be less mobile in the near future. Got it. So I think both Andy and Valerie mentioned that there is a lot of motivation uh, to deploy innovative mobility solutions and support transportation electrification. There's the resiliency angle. We want to ensure that people can uh, continue to live where they live. Um, I suppose there's probably some motivation. Um, I know, Valerie, you talked a lot about healthcare. Um, one of the things I've heard is that, uh, you know, um, health uh, healthcare facilities are really interested in ensuring that people get to their appointments because um, there's a cost associated with the missed appointments. So um, is the business community interested in supporting this kind of thing as well? Yeah, I definitely think that there are some foundations and some kind of tech startups that are beginning to look at some of these applications. Um, and how this this can evolve. I think they're on the they're letting the automotive manufacturers and the regulatory framework to kind of mature a little bit before they get too engaged. But um, we were working with um, a rural health system in North Dakota, for example, on a proposal to the National Science Foundation. And um, that particular hospital um, system was very interested because they do see the the financial impact of that missed appointment or that missed surgery or the individuals who need to heal and get well, but they can't because they don't get there. And we know that for some particular populations, such as individuals who have had um, kidney disease or kidney failure are now on dialysis, um, you know, that's a very, very tasking, um, but reg regular reoccurring type of an appointment that where autonomous vehicles could be set up on a route to go, you know, pick up this person, pick up this person, pick up this person, and then take them to their dialysis. And then, you know, four hours later, they go home. You know, those routes that can be established, I think there's definitely some um, early adopters, because there's also, you know, if someone lives in a rural community and they don't have access to transportation, they may get to four dialysis appointments in a month opposed to 12. And so that makes a big difference in their recovery, their quality of life, the likelihood that they would have to have something amputated, um, the likelihood for them to develop other um, physical issues such as dementia or diabetes that accompany the di the dialysis or the the kidney failure. And so there's there's definitely a financial incentive um, and the healthcare systems that we've talked to about it um, is is very interested in this. I know there's a health system in Plano, Texas, it kind of an urban, but they have rural um, areas, but they're working on a pilot with autonomous vehicles with Toyota. Um, and so I think that there there's definitely a financial business case and certainly when it comes to the price of what these rural autonomous electric vehicles will cost, you know, we will need some big payor sources and we know that, you know, such a large percentage of income and, and cost um, is associated with those missed appointments or missed surgeries. So 
um, there's definitely interest, but I think we're seeing a lot of them are like, yeah, we're, you know, we'll come along and we'll, we'll provide our input and our feedback, but the, the technology maturity of where these things are at, um, is certainly still in that early stage. And so, um, as, as some of those things become more firm, as there are more regulations that are established that are well understood, um, and as vehicles are maturing and their functionality, um, I think we will really begin to see them come to the table. Yeah, and I think that's a great segue too, um, to kind of diving in on what's going on in Bastrop, Texas. So, um, you know, as these new technologies become available and they need to be tested, um, the U.S. Department of Energy has invested some effort in uh, kind of looking at uh, EAMS in the rural context. And so, Katie, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what you're doing um, in Bastrop. We're working with uh, Electric Cab of North America and CARTS, and they are the rural transit provider for the Central Texas area. And that partnership has resulted in uh, the Electric Cab providing a service within the community of Bastrop and they deploy a low-speed electric vehicle, one of which um, seats uh, six, and then another uh, that's wheelchair accessible. So you can actually, um, if you have a wheelchair, if you're in a wheelchair, you can actually get into the vehicle. And so they provide a service, they serve a service area that includes downtown Bastrop and a little bit um, around, around the downtown area. And, and it also serves the main transit uh, center that um, serves as the hub for the buses that connect Bastrop to other rural cities and the city of Austin, which is the closest largest city. And so they started the low speed electric service in uh, December of 2020. And, uh, you know, we had the pandemic and we had a snowstorm. So, but ever since then, the, the a number of passengers using the service has been increasing. And uh, as part of this project, we have been uh, surveying passengers that take the service and taking advantage of opportunities to get the general public's view of the service. Uh, so I went out to a couple of festivals and Bastrop that happened over the summer, back when the pandemic kind of took a little bit of a, a lull. <laughs> and uh, we were able to survey a lot of people uh, about what they thought about the service, if they've ever used it. So we got a lot of valuable information from that. And I'm happy to share more about that. Got it. So these are low speed electric vehicles um, and they have a driver? Yes. So a low speed electric vehicle is um, a separate classified at the National Highway um, Traffic Safety Administration, NHTSA, uh, defines a low-speed electric vehicle as a vehicle that can operate up to 25 miles per hour. It is not a golf cart. A golf cart is actually a separate class of vehicles, uh, and they can operate in Texas on roadways that are have a speed limit of 45 miles per hour or less, and uh, electric cab uses um, a drive. It, they have drivers, so we do not, this is not a driverless or automated vehicle service. Got it. And you said that they operate on a fixed route? So they, uh, no, they're uh, on demand. So okay. they respond to, um, you can either call into CARTS or uh, use the app. Uh, they're, it's called the CARTS Now app. And um, you can, 
say what your origin is and where your destination is, and then the low-speed electric vehicle will pick you up and take you directly there. And so far, the way they've been operating it, it's just uh, one passenger set of passengers going from one origin to the to the destination. Got it. So, um, and what community need is the project trying to solve? So, uh, Bashab doesn't really have. So it's it's walkable in the downtown area, but it's not necessarily walkable for the rest of the community. So the idea was uh, allowing people within this uh, smaller town to be able to get around um, without having to drive and also to basically pick up where um, the carts fixed route transit couldn't provide service. And so that's the need is just to help those that come into Bastrop either you know, arriving in the transit center from outside the city and needing to connect from that transit center to their destination of Bastrop. So the service provide, uh, the electric cab service provides that connection, uh, the first last mile. And um, also to help those that are just trying to get within their community and also trying to uh, helping visitors out if they wanna um, venture from downtown to some other part of Bastrop and so that's the idea is to, to fill the um, the gap in transportation service that's um, available in a rural community. Got it. And sorry, just so I'm clear, there's the electric cab and then carts. Is that also part of this project or was that pre-existing? So carts is the rural uh, transit provider for Central Texas okay. and electric cab is working uh, for them uh, to provide this low-speed electric service within the Bastrop area. Great, okay, so I get it. So there's this multimodal co component where you can connect to the broader transit service, um, but then also use the um, on-demand electric cab to get around the community of Bastrop access services. Um, and I think that's neat. You said that there was um, wheelchair accessible too, so people with uh, limited mobility could also take advantage of these resources. Yes. Great. And so what are people saying? What do they think about it? Uh, it's overwhelmingly positive. <laughs> so we um, the survey that was given out at the festivals included um, it was actually a pretty long survey and I was impressed that I was able to get so many people to take a two page or a you know one page front and back survey. Uh, but we included questions in there about, um, you know, their perception of how important is it to have the ECAB, you know, ECAB short for electric cab service in Bastrop. And I mean, it was overwhelming that most people said it's very or somewhat important. Um, and uh, what was interesting is we had a question about how did they first know about uh, ECAB and uh, most of them responded that they had seen the vehicles drive around and that's they're very distinctive looking vehicles. They're not a golf cart. They're not a traditional looking car. So um, just having the vehicle drive around town uh, definitely um, makes an impression on people. And um, when uh, I would administer the survey in person, so basically at these festivals, you have people waiting in line for something. They're sitting, they're resting, um, they're at a booth. So I would just approach them with a paper survey and clipboard and be like, you know, do you mind taking the survey about this service? 
And some of them would know about it from having seen the vehicle and some would be like, I've seen the vehicle, but I've never, I don't know what it is. So then I would tell them about the service and others had neither seen the vehicle or um, heard about the service. So the, um, the administration of the survey was also like an opportunity to spread more awareness about the service. Um, and uh, yeah, some other questions that were asked on the survey. Uh, we actually uh, had a question specific to automated vehicles. So as I mentioned, these electric cab vehicles are um, do have a driver, uh, but we had a question in there of some say automated vehicles will be prevalent in the future. Assuming automated is deemed safe, what do you think about having a driver or driverless e-cab service? And most people responded that they prefer having a driver for the service. And um, what was interesting is um, some people made comments that they, they like having the driver present. And uh, one thing that Electric Cab emphasizes is that they're drivers serve as ambassadors for the community. So the driver is not only providing a service to transport people, but also to be as a um, source for information about the community and just as a way to make it uh, more of a community building, <laughs> mm -hmm. I guess, a mobility experience of uh, the driver gets to know the passengers that are you know more regular and also help out visitors to the city to know where to go, what to do. Well, that's exciting. It sounds like people people are taking advantage of the service um, and they are beginning to recognize it um, and they feel that it's bringing a benefit to the community. And anyone can use this service? Anyone can use the service, although I think right now they still have, um, technically I think they still have an age restriction. You have to be 18 or up. And uh, so far, the service has been running uh, mostly as a daytime service, so like early in the morning to early evening. And that's um, going to be changing uh, to where it'll operate more in the evening and um, ex expand the service area a bit to help with serving hotels. I think that's in the plans right now. So um, that was one of the common, uh, we had like an open-ended question of, you know, give us some feedback on what you'd like to see or what you like about the service. And um, one of the common uh, comments received both on the survey and also just in talking to people at these festivals where I um, had the surveying done was um, they thought it was great to have the service but they really wanted to see it happen in the evening so that people that were going to downtown for you know drinking or eating that they had an option to take the ecap service home afterwards and um, also if people have different work schedules that require them to leave later so um, definitely that feedback has been taken into consideration and service changes happening as a result well, Andy and Valerie, like what what have what has your been your role been in the project and and what are your takeaways? Well, um, the annual role in the project uh, primarily is looking at um, energy impacts of the use of of the the ecab service. Um, data have have been generated by um, the use of the service um, and understanding uh, through uh, questions of of passengers and through the survey the types of modes that it's replacing uh, help us get a, a handle on um, the, the overall energy impact. That 
effort is still in progress, um, having not quite had a, a year of operation yet. But it appears as though uh, at least a, a, a fair portion of the trips are replacing larger uh, or private vehicles um, and would represent a reduced um, energy footprint uh, on a per trip basis. I, I think also something that's of interest is just understanding how electric vehicles and electric drivetrains are, are perceived in, in a rural setting. And as, as Katie noted, that this uh, the impression of that system is fairly positive. And the possibility, I think, of um, the, the appeal for electric vehicles in rural or small community settings uh, is there. Um, Katie also noted that um, they, they experienced uh, unusual snow, uh, cold weather in Texas. And one of the stories that, that came out of that was the use of hybrid Ford F-150 uh, pickup trucks that were able to, at least in part, uh, as a generator, power power homes. And so I think the, the interest in electric or hybrid drivetrains um, with experience in, in these non-urban areas uh, is is going to open up markets, uh, open up interest in, in EVs overall. Great. And Valerie, what are some of your takeaways? Um, I think, you know, in this project, um, I've kind of been on the outside predominantly just communicating at group meetings and sharing insight. Um, but I think the the in the the learnings that um, have been had about this pilot and how it could be engaged in in other communities is really intriguing from our perspective because we're a integrator and across the U.S. Phoenix works with communities to deploy a variety of innovative solutions to meet the needs of whether that be a transit agency, a hospital, an insurance company, you know, those kind of major funders. And this kind of service is something that is definitely something we could potentially approach um, another community about bringing on um, a fleet of vehicles of this nature to support those um, on-demand level of service. Because to Katie's point there, most communities do not have this Uber or Lyft type of service. And there needs to be um, kind of an innovative approach of how that on-demand mobility is established. Um, and and framed within the community to be successful because one of the reasons that Uber and Lyft or these on-demand modes are very rarely in these communities because the ride volume requests are pretty low and so then there's not enough to keep a driver busy or to keep somebody um, busy who's maybe either salary or hourly and so it's kind of this very interesting where framework of you know, when you were deploying, you know, Uber and Lyft in an urban setting, the drivers were circle where there's high demand for requests, event centers, things of that nature, airport. But in a rural community, there is very rarely hubs of activity, except for maybe like the county fair or major public meetings or school getting out. But it's generally more, you know, you might have a ride, a couple rides at eight, maybe a ride or two at 10, a few rides at two o'clock and maybe one or two at five. Well, that's not enough rides generally that are going to keep a driver busy. And so in deploying something of this nature, alongside various organizations that will have regular reoccurring trips is kind of a model where this could be 
deployed for success and also maintain a low um, carbon footprint, perhaps even provide some economic development and meet, most importantly, the needs of the residents in the community. So we're just really excited to be kind of a watcher and a listener um, in this particular project and see how we could work with other communities across the U.S. to deploy something of this nature. Part of the what makes this uh, project exciting, I think, is uh, just what uh, Valerie touched on, the, um, that this might fill a gap that's somewhat between the on-demand services offered by transportation networking companies and traditional transit. Um, this is something that might operate um, more efficiently um, from a, 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 both an energy and financial standpoint. Um, and be viable for a wider range of communities that may not be large or dense enough for, say, bus uh, transit operations, um, and also not have the the, uh, the the density of population sufficient to be appealing to uh, the Ubers and Lyfts of the world, yet still offer a viable uh, transit alternative, a public transportation alternative uh, in, in specific settings. So learning what we can from um, the, the, the Bastrop project and how it can be translated elsewhere, I think is one of the things that, that uh, gets our, our research group really excited. Yeah, and to that point, I mean, do we have any insights yet on how we make this sort of thing sustainable? Well, I think it's, um, probably a, a web of different funding opportunities. As uh, was noted earlier, that the costs associated with missed healthcare appointments or uh, healthcare appointments that um, uh, end up uh, as emergency room visits if, if uh, uh, maintenance of health is not taken care of in time. Um, along with economic opportunities, uh, there are, are businesses that that need labor and don't have access um, to labor pools, um, thinking about how uh, systems like this might be able to serve uh, multiple functions, um, both for mobility needs of, of individuals as well as uh, business needs to um, ensure that uh, people who uh, want to work are able to access uh, employment opportunities. There, there's probably a network, um, a balance there someplace um, where funding makes sense um, to connect people to, to jobs and, and to other uh, destination needs. Um, one of the partners that I've worked with in Northeastern Ohio uh, framed it as uh, a paradox uh, where um, no car, no job, no job, no car is, is a challenge that a lot of people are facing. Um, and especially in, in uh, the recovery following the pandemic, ensuring that people have access to employment and ensuring that, that employers have access to labor are, are some key societal uh, needs that this can in part address. Got it. And Katie, I think you mentioned as well that the service in Bastrop potentially helped move uh, visitors around. So I assume that there's um, a benefit to local businesses and maybe um, another potential supporter would be a chamber of commerce or um, a local visitors bureau. Is that right? 
Yes, yes. Actually, Visit Bastrop has been supportive of this service, and they actually added um, a vehicle wrap on one of the low-speed electric vehicles that says Visit Bastrop. So, um, yeah, they definitely see the value of this type of service for visitors. And um, I think generally, just from you know the discussions with people um, that I've met with uh, that wanted to take the survey. Um, and just you know, members of the community that are, have been a part of this is they do see this as a community building um, mobility option. It's not just a transportation service. It's an opportunity to really connect the community um, to create a unique way to get around the city um, for residents, visitors and people coming in to work. Um, so it's something that um, it's much more than just a a vehicle driving around the road. It, it can be something more. Absolutely. And um, I guess one other kind of series of questions is in, in terms of the sustainability of services like this, is there is there the capacity locally to service uh, these types of low speed electric vehicles? Um, is that a need? Uh, what does that look like? Well, low-speed electric vehicles, uh, unlike a full-size conventional electric vehicle, you can charge it with a 110 volt. So you can just, just plug it into the wall uh, of any building. You don't need any special electric infrastructure. Um, they certainly make low-speed electric vehicles where you can get it charging faster if it has uh, you know, a lithium battery pack and you can get the faster charging with the... Um, so um, that I would that the infrastructure to consider when implementing a low speed electric vehicle service is looking at your roadway network to see um, if you know one you look at the speed limits uh, it, you know varies by state in Texas like I mentioned uh, they can operate on roads that are 45 miles per hour or less and um, so that would define your service area um, and also looking at uh, opportunities for the vehicle to have space on the roadway to, um, you know, operate without perhaps getting stuck in traffic too much or, you know, having it an area to, to drop passengers off safely. Uh, but it, they operate with the vehicle, so they just take the automobile lane like the conventional car. Um, but they only go a maximum of 25 miles per hour, so. <laughs> uh, but the idea with this is, you know, you're trying to offer a service where people do not have to, um, you know, use their traditional car. And these are more compact vehicles, you know, they're electric, so there's a sustainability, um, you know, air quality benefit to having them used. Uh, they require less energy, less space uh, to operate. And uh, yeah, I think uh, other than that, uh, just considering that um, you have, uh, a community like Bastrop where it has like this compact downtown area and like the older residential areas around it and then you have the more traditional like suburban type development around there and right now the low-speed electric service is able to service both areas. Well this has been a really interesting conversation. Um, it sounds like I mean there's this is definitely uh, a technology that could be deployed in other communities. I think we have a sense of some of the work that you might need to do to kind of understand the opportunity, that sort of thing. Are there any other final thoughts that any of you have on um, the the project in Bastrop or opportunities for rural communities with respect to Eames? I think that uh, 
there there's certainly a lot of opportunity to adapt uh, technologies and practices that first emerged in urban areas uh, for implementation and use in in smaller communities and rural settings. So I think we're only just now starting to understand uh, what some of the possibilities are. Um, there is rapid uh, emergence of of a lot of new uh, mobility technologies that, if uh, at the outset um, there is a consideration for for rural settings, we will likely be able to um, build on on those opportunities even more quickly. Yeah, I think that to just echo what Andy was saying, a lot of times rural communities get written off um, because, you know, a lot of times they're like, oh, it's more complicated, it's harder, or, oh, well, who's going to use it anyway, or how many people would, would go there? And, you know, working and being in a lot of urban uh, mobility innovation pilots, it's like they get to rural and it's like this fog comes up. And I feel like um, as a society and a community with such a large percentage of the landmass of the world and particularly the U.S. being rural, you know, we really need to establish a culture in this innovative space that rural is a priority and that rural matters and that, yeah, there might be 5,000 people in that city or 14,000 people in that city or 200 people in that city, but every single one of those lives is important and individuals are eager and excited to support new things and innovation. And as Katie was saying, you know, the Visitors Bureau being excited about this innovation and this option coming to the community, I think um, innovators will find that um, same environment and same welcome receptiveness across the country. So just really excited to see this innovation continue in rural communities. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think there there's a lot of opportunity and it's it's great to see that this is being tested and, and is uh, being well received. Katie, anything else you want to add? Sure. Uh, I think. Oh. One of the things is that um, is unique about low-speed electric vehicles um, is that people perceive it as, oh, it's just for university or corporate campuses or, um, you know, maybe high-density areas like bigger cities, downtown. Um, for instance, they operate in downtown Austin servicing, you know, the downtown area. And what's been great about this project in Bastrop is to see that this particular vehicle uh, is really um, uh, very versatile. It can serve a wide variety of geographic and community settings. And that's been really fun to see in this project. And it's been great to see that the community has been so interested and has placed value on having this vehicle service in the community. Um, so that's been exciting to see as part of this pilot project in, in Bastrop. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's one of those things that we just hope it continues. And um, I, I think we have a lot to learn from this, from so many things, from energy usage, uh, from uh, how it can really serve the community in terms of uh, increasing mobility options for people and, um, you know, uh, really helping businesses and uh, residents and visitors so it's it's not just servicing one population it's serving a bunch of people and i do want to mention that the next phase of the the research we're doing is to um you know we've been serving the general public and 
talking to them, but we really do want to get a better understanding of how businesses perceive of this. So um, that's the next phase is to go and, and interview um, business owners to see what their perception is of it. Uh, so, yeah. Well, thanks so much, Andy, Valerie, and Katie. This was a great conversation. We really appreciate your time today, and we're interested to kind of stay tuned to see how uh, the project in Bastrop develops, um, as well as other opportunities that are being deployed in, in rural communities around the country. So thanks again. We really appreciate your time, um, and we look forward to more conversations like this in the future. Thank, thank, thank you. you for the opportunity. Thanks. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks, Andy, Valerie, and Katie for joining us and sharing how energy efficient mobility strategies can help address mobility gaps in rural areas. As someone who grew up in the middle of nowhere, it's easy to see how expanded options for rural mobility would be transformative. Knowing that families like mine wouldn't have to juggle two cars among six people or that my grandparents wouldn't have to figure out how they're going to get to the store would make a world of difference. Before we wrap up, we want to share a quick transportation news tidbit with you. What do you have for us this time, Molly? As you've probably heard, access to charging infrastructure is one of the challenges associated with EV adoption in rural areas. One way this gap is being addressed is by installing chargers on public land, such as national parks. The National Park Service has been working with the National Renewable Energy Lab and Clean Cities Coalitions to identify where these chargers should be built. So far, more than 150 EV chargers have been installed in our national parks. You can read more about this initiative as well as other efforts by Clean Cities Coalitions to expand EV charging infrastructure in a recent article in Newsweek magazine. The article is titled, National and State Parks are America's Next Great Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Frontier. You can find a link in the description of this episode. That's really exciting. And it's great to see coalitions getting national recognition for their work. Thanks for sharing that, Molly. That's it for this episode of On The Go. As we wrap up, I want to thank the U.S. Department of Energy's Vehicle Technologies Office and our team here at the National Renewable Energy Lab for their support. Also, a big thanks to Brittany Conrad, our podcast editor. We couldn't do it without you. If you want to learn more about Clean Cities and its partnerships to develop affordable, efficient, and clean transportation options to accelerate the development and widespread use of a variety of innovative transportation technologies, visit us at cleancities.energy.gov.